I wanted to finish uh, the mixing problem from last time. So before we get into <coughs> today's lecture. So we had been talking about what is the entropy of mixing. So we have an alloy, for example, that's got two constituents. We labeled them very creatively, constituent A and constituent B. And we wanted to see what the entropy difference was between if we let the atoms uh, not mix and if we let the atoms mix. So if we let them mix, we saw that the entropy went way up because they have more configurations available. And so here, for example, we, we started with the multiplicity function and then we calculated the entropy directly from that. Entropy is the log of the multiplicity function. And we saw that the entropy is always positive <coughs> for any finite concentration, okay? Which meant that the, the, the uh, free energy was going down then, okay? So you can look at it either way. Either entropy is being maximized or free energy is being minimized. This is out of your notes last week, so you already have the notes for this. Now, you know, so the question you can ask yourself is which one Okay, so that was the entropy argument, but to be a little bit more careful with the free energy argument, what we want to do is calculate the free energy for the case where they mix, which is what we just did. Okay, this would be what's the uh, internal energy of all of those atoms. And here, this equation is assuming that there's no particular energy difference between an, an AA bond, a BB bond, and an AB bond. Okay, so it's under that set of assumptions. And then, Here's the uh, entropy term that gets added to free energy. And since this entropy is uh, negative, let's see, right, since the entropy was positive, this minus tau sigma is uh, negative. Okay, so then the, the free energy is getting less than this case. This case is if we don't mix them. So if we don't mix them, we still have the same amount of internal energy. I've broken it up into two terms, where the first term is uh, what is the free energy due to the A atoms. This is what's the free energy due to the B atoms. You see X plus one minus X will give you a one. So the internal energy is the same, right? Because I made that assumption that AA, BB, and AB have the same interaction energy. But the entropy has gone to zero pretty much, okay? Because if I do that, if I phase separate out the atoms and have only A's over here and only B's over here, there's one configuration. Log of one is zero, log of one is zero. So the free energy, uh, is a lot higher if you don't let these guys mix. So <coughs> that'll that'll beg the question later, and we'll, we'll study that in a in a few chapters. Why do you ever get phase separation? I mean, we all know that when you put oil and water together, they they don't actually like to mix. So it'll be due to the interaction energies between the the constituents. But if it's if it's more or less the same stuff, where they're going to have similar interaction energies, like red Kool-Aid and blue Kool-Aid then they will tend to mix. Are there any questions about that? Okay. So we can use this to, uh, to study concentrations of impurities in crystals. So I had A atoms and B atoms. Now let me think about the situation where I have all A atoms, but we all know that there are defects in crystals. Okay. So there's naturally occurring defects. Nothing's really necessarily perfect. It turns out, have you heard that before, that when, when a crystal's grown naturally or in the lab, it's probably going to have some defects in it? Are you familiar with that? Okay. turns out that that is entropy-driven because of the entropy of mixing. So if you think of mixing in a certain concentration of mistakes, the entropy for that is so favorable that you'll always, in the crystal, tend to pull in a finite concentration of mistakes until you get to zero temperature. 
So why does the entropy matter at zero temperature? Or do you believe me? I'm claiming the entropy doesn't matter at zero temperature. <laughs> what's, what's the reason I might say that? Okay, that's a good reason. <laughs> so if there's nothing left of the thing can do other than its ground state, its entropy presumably has gone to zero. What about from the perspective of the free energy? What happens to the free energy as the temperature goes to zero? It becomes the internal energy. Yeah, it becomes the internal energy. And the part that depends on the entropy is scaled out by temperature, right? The free energy is U minus tau sigma. So if temperature goes to zero, that entropy contribution to the free energy doesn't matter anymore. So yes, for all those reasons, okay, we won't worry about the entropy at zero temperature. It's not that funny. Okay, I will, I will be funny later and then. <laughs> yes? Does that mean we sh is it possible to grow crystals at, at close to zero Kelvin? And if we wanted to grow a crystal, would it's that hard. be a way to do it? Uh, if you wanted to grow it, if you really needed a perfect crystal, it is really hard. There are some labs in some places that, that specialize in certain purities of crystals. So for certain, um, for certain applications, it helps to have a very, very highly pure silicon crystal, for example. Uh, your computers don't need that high purity, but you'll see labs in various places that will claim to grow 99.99% pure, and that'll cost you so much. If you want 99.999% pure, that's going to cost you probably a factor of 10 more. You know, and so on. So they will do the things that they need to do to get it more perfect. So, yeah, it's it's uh, that's <laughs> right. So in the same sense that you can't reach absolute zero in a finite number of steps, you can't reach absolute purity without an infinite amount of money. <laughs> so the small concentration of impurities is is actually entropy driven. Uh, so let's let's take the small concentration limit where we're going to say that x is a very small number compared to one. And that means that the, our, in our notation, we were using A atoms and B atoms. So this time B is going to be empty site, for example, some sort of defect. And number of B spots will be much, much less than the total number of spots available. The uh, energy associated with, with doing that is, will scale like the concentration. Because if I assume, for example, that when I create a defect, each defect costs a certain amount of energy, but I stay in the dilute limit. I don't want to let one defect sit next to another defect to make it very dilute. Now I can count the uh, internal energy cost as just scaling with the concentration. Okay, so don't don't worry about that too much. But the the entropy we can now uh, do what we always do as physicists when we find a small parameter. We Taylor expand. Okay, so here's one of the Taylor expansions that's good to know log of 1 minus x is approximately equal to minus x. So if we use that here in our uh, expression for the entropy, here we have a log of 1 minus x. Make that into a minus x. Okay. Now, uh, gather terms around here. So I have an overall x here. An overall x minus minus gives a plus sign. So let me pull out the overall x. xn times what's left over is 1 minus x comes straight down. Log of x comes straight down. Okay. Now what do you want to do with this guy? I have a 1, I have a minus x, and I have a minus log of x, where x is very small. What's the biggest term in magnitude? 
her to vote for one. Why do you say that? Okay, so the logarithm goes goes really sharply negative, right? As you get to very small. So the this is the winning term, log right here. So the entropy I can approximate then as uh, minus x times the total number of particles times log x. So that's that's the entropy uh, due to a small concentration of impurities. You know, if I wanted to be uh, more rigorous, I could just include all those terms. But in this limit. This is the term that dominates, so that's why we did that. Now we can now we can use that nice simple formula to write uh, even slicker equations. So let me say, for example, that I'd like to calculate the free energy, and what we'd like to do is minimize the free energy. So the free energy, uh, and this is the free energy due to the concentration of impurities. Okay, so this is uh, the the change in free energy basically when I add some some impurities. That'll be basically whatever the energy cost was to adding the impurities, Q scales of the concentration, minus tau sigma, which tau sigma we approximated as minus x n log x. So there's the total free energy. Depends on a term that goes like x, the concentration, and a term that goes like x log x. That's the entropy part. And if I want to minimize the free energy, then I take the first derivative of the free energy with respect to concentration and set that equal to zero, okay? And so it turns out that the minimum of free energy with respect to changing the concentration uh, gives, you, uh, gives you a natural impurity content in any crystal. So what I, what I did was I found the minimum of free energy, solved this equation, right? So this stuff equals zero because that's the derivative of the free energy. Take the exponent of both sides, exponent of log of x, x exponent of this stuff is e to this stuff, okay? So x then, it depends on e to the minus, 1 plus this, this uh, energy cost to the concentration divided by the temperature. So that'll give you a natural impurity content. So every, every crystal has a certain amount of defects that just naturally uh, occur due to temperature. So you could take it down to zero temperature and you would get a different answer. Any questions about that? The, the points to take home are that mixing things is entropy driven. They mix on their own. That's entropy driven. That same <coughs> principle gives you a finite concentration of defects in crystals. So, for example, so here I have a diamond on my ring, and there's a finite concentration of impurities in it. Too bad, huh? There's there's actually, I've looked at it under a microscope, there's actually a little uh, smudge of carbon inside. Well, I mean, it is carbon, but, you know, a smudge of black carbon, so. <laughs> Shock and awe. Okay. <laughs> so, last time, okay, so now we're officially studying this lecture. I didn't finish that in last lecture. So officially starting your notes today, the ideal gas loss is PV equals N tau. You saw it in chemistry as PV equals NRT or PV equals NKT. We've just absorbed those constants into tau. So in, in our units, it's PV equals N tau, where tau is temperature in units of energy. We talked about the equipartition of energy. The internal energy of a system will be uh, 
and the high temperature limit will go to the number of degrees of freedom times power over two. And basically that says that if I put enough thermal energy in the system, it will all distribute into all the available channels. That's what equipartition is about. It's about do I have enough thermal energy to occupy that mode? Yes, then occupy it so that eventually I will equally occupy everything. The entropy of mixing was what we just finished. Things want to mix, alloys are stable, for example. Okay? This is why when you have uh, an alloy like bronze, you don't come back and find that it's trying to separate itself out again. It won't. Okay? It's a <coughs> nice, stable material. We also looked at the partition function of one photon mode. We're trying to build up Planck's black body radiation, the fact that I'm glowing in the infrared, okay, and the reason that stars glow and the reason that light bulbs work incandescent light bulbs uh, is Planck's black body radiation, hot things glow, cold things glow at lower frequencies. And so we built up the partition function for one photon mode, which was the following. For one photon mode, there's a particular frequency. The energy is h bar times that frequency. And the partition function for a single mode is, well, I have to sum over e to the minus energy over tau for all the different occupancies available to the photon mode. So it's a photon, so it's a boson. We went over that last time. Bosons have uh, integral spin, so photons fall into that category. And then I can put either zero or one or two or a thousand or fifteen thousand or a million photons into that mode, and that all goes into the partition function, which we could sum was an infinite sum, but we knew how to take the infinite sum. So the partition function was 1 over 1 minus e to the minus h bar omega over tau. The Planck distribution function was based off of that. That's just, given a particular photon mode, what's the average number of photons in it? That's all that is. We had a fancy name for it, which was the thermal occupancy of one photon mode, or the average thermal occupancy. Just means, on average, how many photons are there. So expectation value of S is, that's not right, <laughs> let's see, no, it is right, 1 over e to the h bar omega over tau minus 1. Sorry, I was looking exactly like the partition function. It's only close to the partition function, right? So this is, this is the denominator is e to the h bar omega over tau minus 1. So that's, that's what we did last time. Um, we got a little bit far into the Planck body, Planck's black body radiation as well. So here's where we're headed. We'd like to understand what's the frequency spectrum that comes off of any hot object, just due to the fact that it's hot and it's glowing. And we'll relate that to the energy flux that comes away from the object. So this is actually part of your homework. You have some heat shield, you have a heat shield problem in your homework where you have a plate, two plates that are at different temperatures each plate radiates according to the Stefan Boltzmann law, that is its energy that's radiating away goes like t to the fourth, same thing here, radiant power per area, t to the fourth. And then you have to calculate what's the, uh, what's the steady state temperature if you put a heat shield between those two. The peak frequency in, in the spectrum here will tell us the temperature. So this is actually how we know the temperature of stars. We'll get into the, the uh, background radiation from the Big Bang today. And, okay, so draw a line here, that's photons. Above that line is photons. Below that is phonons. Phonons are sound particles. It's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? It's a little quantized vibrational modes inside of a solid. We call those phonons, sound particles. So uh, we'll see that because we've solved the photon problem, 
going to be very similar to the phonon problem, that is how sound travels in a solid, and we'll be able to calculate the heat capacity uh, for, for phonons as well. So that's where we're headed. Any burning questions before we dive in again? Yeah? What's the spin of phonons? Yeah. Ah, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whoop. That's right. Yeah. So, so what a phonon is going to turn out to be, if I'm thinking of a crystal. Oh, <coughs> during break, I'm going to go get my squishy crystal. Okay. Somebody remind me. You remind me. Okay. I have a squishy crystal in my office. Okay. So, um, I'll bring in the squishy crystal, and then you can see. But in a solid, uh, the atoms are a little bit squishy. Okay. And you can set up vibrational modes that go through the solid. Those are the phonons. And there's no reason for that to carry any particular spin. So it's not a new fundamental particle in that it doesn't exist outside of the crystal, but it's an excitation that I can treat as a particle as far as physics is concerned. And then since it's this kind of vibrational mode, there's nothing to stop me from having higher and higher amplitude vibrations. So I can, that's the same thing as adding more phonons to the same mode. That's what it'll turn out to be. Yeah. Any other questions? Make sure I bring in the squishy crystal for after break. Okay. Okay, we did this stuff last time, so let's see. All right. We're sticking photons in a box. We always stick everything in a box <coughs> because the math is easier. <coughs> and at the end of the day, we'll let the box size be large, so it won't matter. We're heading towards this. We already did this part. We quantized the electromagnetic modes inside the cavity. And we'd like to know what's the energy per unit volume in the box. Basically, we have a box. It's at a particular temperature. And there'll be a gas of photons inside that are in thermal equilibrium with the size of the box. Mainly because the box itself, because it's at a particular temperature, is radiating photons in. And we'd like to be able to tell this law, the energy per unit volume in the box, as a function of temperature. Because as I turn up the temperature, I'll occupy higher and higher energy photon modes. And we'd like to know this Planck radiation law. That is, hot things glow. They'll have a particular intensity for every frequency. And the peak frequency tells you something about the temperature. So here, we did the last stop. Yes, yes, yes. Remember this EM radiation in the cavity? We, used max, we required that Maxwell's equations be satisfied in the box. And since the box has no excess charge, we we're going to look at delta E is zero, right? And the important part was that uh, we had this n vector, n back up here, n had to do with the number of nodes in the photon mode. So here is one photon mode with no nodes. Could have a node in the middle, it could have two nodes, etc. These n's control that n sub x, n sub y, and n sub z in the different directions control the number of nodes. So we turn that n sub x, n sub y, and n sub z into three numbers, characterizing the mode. We turned it into a vector in three space and said, okay, Maxwell's equation, delta E is zero, is equivalent to E, the amplitude of the, of the uh, electric field, dotted into this n vector, which is something we made up. Okay, n does not exist. We made it up, right? That is zero. E dot is zero. It's equivalent to uh, Maxwell's law. And that being true meant that the, uh, the direction of the electromagnetic 
the direction of the electric field would have to be perpendicular to whatever n vector we were talking about at the time. There are two ways to be perpendicular. Right? If I choose n, I can have E be this way or that way. So two ways. So we needed that factor of two when we did this, how to count the number of moles. So we summed up the internal energy being the sum over all the moles of the internal energy associated with, with one mole. We needed a factor of two for the two directions of equal points. For, right, for a given n, and n is just a dummy vector we made up, for a given n, you can point in two directions, energy factor of 2, sum over nx and y and z all being greater than 0. That's going to be the total internal energy in the mode. And then, uh, expectation value of, of e was h bar omega over e to the h bar omega over tau minus 1. Substituted that in. Now, now we have a bit of work to do. We want to take a sum difficult to take infinite sum, well, it's difficult to take any sum, but especially infinite sum. You either have to know a trick or convert to an integral. So in this case, uh, the right thing to do is to convert to an integral. So here's, here's how we convert the integral. We want to sum over nx and y and z, where these are integers. So we're simply counting the number of nodes in each direction. And we turn that into to three numbers, nx and y and z. And the sum, I can think now, of a fictitious space in x and y and z, and I'm summing over all of it. So I can convert to an integral, and uh, the, the direct way to do this is to convert into an integral over all space in x and y and z space. So that's integral from minus infinity to infinity of d and x, minus infinity to infinity d and y, and so on. You remember what the what h is for? Yeah, they all have to be positive. So is half times a half times a half. So I'm only summing over positives. So I take, yeah, don't know what the equivalent of a quadrant is in three space. Octant, thank you very much. I take the positive octant. So there's the one eighth. Now, this is an integral over all space. So I can take it however I want. Okay, so I just said find it's an integral over all space. You remember how this goes though. Whenever I find an integral over all space, it can be either Cartesian coordinates or spherical coordinates. You can use other coordinates too, but they're rarely useful. But let's, let's think about spherical coordinates. If I take an integral over all space in spherical coordinates, that becomes integral 0 to 2 pi r d theta, 0 to 2 pi r sine theta d theta, and integrate 0 to infinity dr. If it's isotropic, there's no reason to expect that our, we want a box that's uh, the same in all directions. Okay, so if we do that, then this can be isotropic. And I can convert that into an integral from 0 to infinity of 4 pi r squared dr. If I take all these uh, angle integrals, I'll get the 4 pi out. Okay. 4 pi r squared you recognize as the surface area of a sphere. So the way to think about this physically is that I can integrate overall space by taking shells of spheres which have a surface area 4 pi r squared, and then dr, dr, and they make them larger and larger, and that will eventually fill all space. So that's what this is doing. So I can now convert this, okay? I wanted the sum over nx and y and z, all positive. That'll go to an integral. Uh, there's a 1 eighth in front times an integral from 0 to infinity, 4 pi n squared dn. Okay? So I still need the 1 eighth given that I'm now back at positive ends. 
Why? Because if you're integrating on what was the equivalent in our variable, it can't be negative anyways. Okay. So zero to infinity is still off space. Okay. All right. So this integral is still off space. So I still need the one eighth quadrant. Now here's another question. I just took a problem in a box, right? We quantized the electromagnetic modes in a box. Why am I allowed to turn this into an integral in Turek's coordinates? That sounds could be could be a dumb idea. So. Is there a reason that I should be able to do that? What was that? Okay. Okay. So in some sense, I'll eventually take the box size, you know, to be as big as I want anyway. It could, it could, could be that it won't matter in that sense. That's one reason. There's another reason why it won't matter. N have to do with the box? <laughs> a very brave answer. <laughs> do, do, do you have an idea why it might have nothing to do with the box? <laughs> okay, so we made up the N vector. So yeah, so what, what does it have to do with the box? I mean, where is it physically in our problem? box. <laughs> But I guess the question is, where is the vector n? You're really close. So is right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, on you're right, but, but we still have to figure out why you're right. <laughs> what, is, what does n have to do with the size of the box? Okay. <laughs> I love this. Oh, you know the right answer. The right answer is nothing. I'm going to say nothing. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It has right. It has to do with the electromagnetic field both. <laughs> <laughs> I, d I don't think so. We, we have to quantize them so that they're, they're relative to the box. N can be anywhere. Okay, all right. Oh, no, there's an electric field. This is the matrix. There's an electric field. And N, remember what N was? What is, what is N representing? It's a vector. We call it a vector, but what is it? Number of nodes. I'm not going to tell you guys. You're going to tell me. If we don't work this out, you'll be looking over your notes again going, what the heck? We took a spherical integral over a box? You know, you're not usually allowed to do that. Okay? You should, in general, not take a box and then convert to spherical coordinates. So here's N. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Famous last word. Approximate the racing horse as a perfectly conducting spherical object. <laughs> so, EX, EY, and EZ, we quantized inside the box as, so EX, for example, dependent on cosine of NX, pi X over L, 
times sine ny pi y over L times sine nz pi z over L. So what is n? What's it doing? Yeah, it just has to do the number of modes. Okay. Since there's a very large amount of modes, technically we could do integral, right? That's right, that's right. There's a very large amount of modes, okay, so we can convert to an integral. Okay, alright. So n is, <laughs> n, n is a variable we, we made up, right? It's just counting the number of nodes. So it's not a vector in real space at all, right? N has you know, it does, it's not related to the geometry of the box. We could change the, uh, the size of the box in one direction, for example. So let's do that. Let me say that I, I change the size of, of the box in the x direction. How does this part change when I do that? Well, you can have more modes in the box. I'll stretch it. Okay, so I'll stretch the, the x direction. How will that change this column of, of uh, terms here? Instead of an L in that direction, I have a different. <laughs> so let's say, let's do this. Where's my chalk? So the box. Wow, that's the world of a simple box. Okay. LS, LY. Let's do LB there. LY. So where, where do LX, LY, and LB go in there? Alex is with the x. Yeah. Y is with the y. <laughs> okay. Good. Okay. So LX goes with the x guys and so on. Now, so then this cosine of nx pi x over L is really a cosine of nx pi x over LX. Mind you, I'm sorry. No, I'm um, looking at the box. There's a box. Good box. L. Like the line, LD. So I can change the size of the box and I will change the mode structure. The mode structure, how the photon modes and how we count the photon modes is just number of nodes. So zero nodes, one node, two nodes, 15 nodes, all of those, that's just an integer characterization, all still fine, okay? So I can still do all that. So, so these ends really aren't about the geometry of the box. They're about the number of nodes that the photon has in it, okay? So it's not a, it's not a vector that's related to, to the, the space of a box. It's not related to real space. So the, as long as we're going to take a set of, of integers, right, three integers, uh, and they're going to go actually from zero to infinity anyway. Okay, so basically we took the space of the ends to infinity. Because I can have zero nodes, I can have two nodes, I can have 15,000 nodes, I can have an infinite number of nodes in there. So since, since n as a vector, as a three vector, runs from zero to infinity, it doesn't matter. And it's independent of the size of the box. So it's, um, where are we? Here, okay. So since the, since the three vector n was going to go from zero to infinity, it doesn't matter how I take it, right? So it was, actually it was okay back in this step. As long as this step was okay to take nx from minus infinity to infinity and ny from minus infinity to infinity. As long as that was okay, an infinite space doesn't matter your coordinate system. But this space has nothing to do with the box. Well, I'm sorry? How did you have a negative number of Sorry, let's put our one eighth to the four. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right. So at the end of the day I just wanted you to know that we're not we're not doing something sneaky here. It's actually correct. Yeah. Okay, I just have a question. We have nodes and modes running yeah. around in this. Uh, Some, sometimes hard to distinguish between the two when they're spoken. Would you like me to make this? 
n cubed dn. So what I'd like to do is multiply and divide by the extra stuff. So think of multiplying by h bar c pi over l tau four times, then divide by it four times. Here's the divide by four times. And then everything that's left over is the dimensionless integral. You have a question, Kyle? Is the fourth time from the dn? Yeah, it is. Okay. It is. So four powers of n means four powers of the scaling in the change of variables. My guess is that that's a really fast way to do a change of variables compared to what you're used to. Okay. You can either write it all out carefully. X is defined as pi h bar c n over l tau. And then write out dx equals pi h bar c over l tau dn. Okay, and do all the substitutions. Or you can do it the slick way that I just did it in my head, which is for every n, and there are four of them here, I'm going to put uh, a pi h bar c over l tau for those, and then divide out that factor. Okay? All right. I'm just being, being fast, teaching homework tricks. tricks okay? So. Quick, quick scaling out. The integral, um, I don't know how to take that integral but I do know the answer. <laughs> okay, so this is not the kind of integral that I care to spend my time learning how to solve. So I looked this up. You can either look it up in your favorite math book or if you don't have a copy of Mathematica, get one now while you're a student. Because they're cheap when you're a student and when you graduate, they charge you like a thousand bucks. Okay, so go out and get your copy of Mathematica now. And Pardon? Yeah, see? Well, it is. I got a free. Okay. Yeah. Free. Yeah. I'll track you down. <laughs> 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 Wolfram's really big on those royalties. He's listening so. to your podcast. I could be. <laughs> <laughs> Mathematical operatives could come and. Anyway, okay. No one heard that. So <laughs> take this integral, look it up, or do it in Mathematica or MATLAB. The answer is pi to the fourth over 15. Uh, all the stuff left over we gather, and we get pi squared L cubed tau to the fourth, 15 uh, times h bar cubed c cubed. Okay? The important thing, okay, that was a bunch of stuff, but here's what I want you to remember. That the energy goes like t to the fourth. Okay? Energy goes like temperature to the fourth in our box of photons. So a box at a particular temperature, the photons inside will have a certain energy associated with them. That'll go up as t to the fourth. Cut? Yeah, I'm confused about why the L is still in, in the energy, the length of the box. Wasn't that supposed to like cancel out or take the box length to infinity? Mm -hmm. so, 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 good question. So the, the n, we were, we were really worried about the n integral. Right. And the n integral actually had nothing to do with L. So that's okay. We take that, that n integral, no problem. So what, what we've got here is you just notice that this energy is extensive. It depends on the size of the box. So if I have a big box, more energy in it. Little box, less energy. If you want to take the system size to infinity, then we have to find a scale way to do this. And actually that brings us to our next few slides, where we'll calculate the energy density. So if we scale out uh, the LQ and talk about energy per volume, 
then that'll be something that will only depend on the temperature and won't depend on the size of the box. I'm glad you caught that. Okay? So this is the total energy, and then we're going to start talking about energy density. So okay? This is just the difference between energy and energy density. Okay? But does it, does it, okay, so what we're talking about is box, or a particular temperature, it radiates photons inside, and there's a gas of photons. But if I have a bigger box, there's more space in it, right? So there's more, there can be more energy in there in the photon gas. Any other questions about this stuff? But what are you thinking? Well, I don't, okay, I guess I don't see how this really helps so much by shifting the balance of the energy, because then when you take the energy density of an infinite volume, so you have u over v, and uh -huh. v is infinite, so your energy goes to zero. Ah, okay, good, good point, good point. So what'll, what'll happen? Unless, like, you can have something of a, like, infinite length with a finite volume. But <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Good, good point. So let's, let me not think about the photons for a second, because photons might be a little bit odd to think about. Pop ladder, right? Pop ladder. Good stuff. Oh, we're just thinking like back in the day when you were... Back in the day? <laughs> but you learned like integrals. They told you like you could have something of like... You could paint... Yeah. I could paint it as much paint as
we'd also like to know about this Planck blackbody radiation law. Given a particular frequency, what intensity should I expect to be radiated away at that particular frequency? And we'll be able to relate the peak frequency to the temperature of an object. Um, so here's how we work this up. Turns out it was in our equations all along. We just took the integral rather than not taking the integral. So we had this. We had that the energy density was pi over L cubed, integrated from 0 to infinity, h bar omega sub n, n squared dn, all over e h bar omega n over tau minus 1. Okay, a bit complicated, but there it is. Uh, you see how this, this is the same formula that we had already for the energy? Okay, I just wrote it a little bit differently. Okay, same exact formula. What I'd like to do is write this now in terms of omega rather than n, because n was a bit odd. Okay? Shouldn't say that. N is not an odd number. N was a bit funny. How about that? <laughs> n was a bit funny. And omega is pi c n over L, so they're related. So where I see an n up here, I just can plug in an omega L over pi c. What I'd like to do is I'd like to know, uh, you know how is this energy distributed in terms of frequency? And it's actually contained there in the integral. If I don't take the integral, but I look at the integrand, it'll, it'll give me the answer. So let's manipulate this. Plug in uh, n equals omega L over pi C. So there's three powers of n plus an extra power of omega. So I'll get omega cubed, d omega, over e to the h bar omega over tau minus 1. This part didn't change, you'll notice. Integrate 0 to infinity over, over omega there. Scale at the h bar. What's left over, okay, is a function that's going to tell me the distribution in every frequency range. It's the same, the same math we've been manipulating, but this time we're not going to take the integral. We're going to say, what, what information does the integrand give us? And, and if I say that the energy density is defined as integrating from 0 to infinity over d omega of the energy density at a particular frequency, kind of odd. It's, the energy, it's basically the energy density per frequency. Does that make sense? If this has units of energy density, and this has units of frequency, this is energy density per frequency. Okay. So if I plot out this function, u sub omega, it's here. That's it. And this is the form of it. Okay. So all we did was say, hey, let's take the integrand, this guy, plot that out. And there it is. Any questions about that? Okay. So this tells you then what we did to get the total energy density. The total energy density was the area under the curve. I take the intensity at every frequency and add it up. Right? Because the intensity at one frequency is a certain amount of power. The intensity at another frequency is another amount of power. I have to add up all that to get the total energy density. Questions? Okay. All right, and you see there's a temperature in here. So the characteristic shape of the curve will change the temperature. And so at different different temperatures, we'll get different peak frequencies. As you get a really low temperature, this thing is going to slide back and have a peak way back here. And when I say slide, it goes to zero here and it goes to zero in infinity. So it's going to kind of just morph itself where the peak will shift back at low temperature and it will shift up at high temperature. 
this thing on the bottom, by the way, this is uh, just to remind you that we're talking about frequency. This is an actual star spectra. I forget which star it's from, but there you go. Actual star spectra. You can tell because there's the little dark lines in it. So here's how we estimate the surface temperature. We just want to find where this curve is peaking because we want the peak frequency. And then I can relate the peak frequency then to the temperature. And then, then you know how to take, well, now you know how to find the temperature of a star. Okay. Assuming it's not too redshifted. But you would look at this frequency. Basically, you would put a spectrum analyzer on the telescope. It will give you a plot of intensity versus frequency. You look at the peak and you say, aha, I know Planck's black body radiation law. Therefore, I know the temperature of that star. How cool is that? Okay. I think it's cool. It's about that cool, okay. <laughs> about two feet of cool. All right. <laughs> so what we need to do then is, is find the peak. And the peak is a maximum. So I can say that this energy density, I just want the maximum energy density. Okay. So I need to take V by D omega of this function. Okay. But the quick way to do that is over here, D by dx, x cubed, e to the x minus 1. Scale things out a little bit, okay? So let's take this functional form. It's the same as that functional form, and it'll give us the same answer. So take the derivative of this. <coughs> First, let's take the derivative of the numerator. That'll give you a 3x squared over e to the x minus 1. Now I need to take the derivative of the denominator. So it'll be, uh, start off with the x cubed minus, 1 over the denominator squared times now the derivative of the denominator, which is e to the x. So all of that together is 0 at the place where the function hits a maximum, because then its derivative is 0. So uh, solving both sides, okay, I can cancel out the e to the x minus 1. I can cancel out one power from both sides. That leaves you with an e to the x minus 1 over here. I have x squared and an x squared hiding in here. I'll cancel those out. That'll leave an x e to the x on the right-hand side and a 3 on the left-hand side. Okay. So there's the real equation. Multiply both sides by e to the x minus 1. And it still doesn't quite help. This is an equation you have to solve numerically. Okay. You have to solve uh, 3 minus 3 e to the minus x equals x. But if you plug that into Mathematica, see, that's where a table wouldn't help you, right? So I, like that. I use Mathematica a lot. Uh, so the answer to this is that uh, h bar omega over tau, okay, which is what we were using for x, okay, x is h bar omega over tau, is 2.82 at the peak. So now you know how to do it. Put the spectrum analyzer on the telescope. I know you have this at home, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Doesn't everybody? Okay. Yeah. So put the spectrum analyzer on the telescope, plot out intensity versus frequency, find the peak, okay, and now all you have to do is take that peak, uh, multiply by h bar, divide by 2.82, and then you have the temperature. Okay. So you can find the temperature of, of any star by doing that. Are there any questions? We'll take a break. And this is really how people find the temperature of the stars. Okay. All right. We'll take a 10-minute break, and I'll go get the crystal. Here's the crystal. So Anne is giving us a demonstration of star spectra. What? Apparently you can get this on your iTap account. Go to computers, go find the Clio program.
basically an exercise. Mm -hmm. Are those real stars or just fake ones? Those are fake. Those are They're. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't remember. <laughs> no pressure. Break break is still happening. Class is not yet. Oh, okay. So. Somebody in the house doesn't want to so at home I have one of those telescopes that's on the cool new stand where you know you set up the telescope and you tell it your zip code, you tell it uh, what time it is and what day it is, and then you point it to a star, and you point it to another star, and now it knows where everything is. And you can say, hey, go find, you know, the North Pole and the Loon. And find it, right? Those are fun. It takes forever to set up, but then once you set up, you can say, what? Now what? It's called a go-to telescope. You can get telescopes, like a whole telescope. You can go around the tripod and know where everything is. It even gives you a little list of what's good to look at. You know,
because there's so much data. That? Right, I mean, right. you have many, I mean, this is only showing three lines, right, but if they showed you the whole spectrum, remember those little color bars I keep showing yeah. in class that have the black lines along them? That's a lot of information. So you get used to seeing that, well, that's kind of a broad line, that's kind of a skinny line, you know, and they have their particular relations, so you get used to noticing when the thing is shifting one way or the other. And Professor, if you notice, when you, when you click on one, it tells you where that is? So that's a hydrogen one line. Oh, cool. We click on this one. That's a delta line also for hydrogen one. So this star is basically mostly hydrogen. That's about it. We did not get an interesting star. And but some of these, you can get calcium and potassium, and I've, I've seen a lot of stuff in these stars. So it must be a uh, first generation star, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Is this guy's brand new? New kid on the block. Our star is third generation. Because we have all the right, I mean, we have all the, the heavy elements, right? First generation stars go from hydrogen to helium. Second generation will take it a few farther in the you'll start to fill out the periodic table. So for us to have a planet that's got all the elements on it, right, we're we're at a third generation star. Thanks. That was cool. So that was in, in your ICAP account. If you go to class programs or something, court yeah, court software in astronomy. Yeah. Yeah, you can play with atomic spectra. Thanks. Yeah. So here we were. We figured out how to take... So they didn't show us the whole spectrum there, right? They were just showing us sort of a tail over here. But if they showed you the whole spectrum, you'd see that there's a broad peak somewhere, and the top of the peak tells you the temperature. But then you'd have to... Uh, is it Eric? Yeah? You pointed out this redshift thing, because the stars are moving away from us. So really the spectrums that we observe are redshifted. So you calibrate the redshift from the pattern of spectral lines, right? And so then, you know, if your star is redshifted, you might get the temperature off, right? But you can use the, the uh, spectral lines to, to reset it. Because every element has a specific spectral line that you're not going to confuse with. Right. Right. Like the lines are in certain distance. That's right. That's right. They're very specific. Yeah. Very characteristic. Yeah. Okay, so after you've undone the red shift, okay, or the blue shift if the star happens to become important, then it goes that way. You you know why stars red shift, right? Yeah. Most of the stars What now? Aren't most of the stars we see though in our own galaxy? And therefore, not be redshifting from us at all. Um, no, I'm not. I just made it up. <laughs> 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 okay, Anderson. No, I just think a lot of astronomy. Well, even when we're in our galaxy, we're going to be like. What was your question? Just pointing out the galaxies redshift away from us, right? Yeah. Ah. Gal other galaxies, they're redshifting. Yeah. There's hardly any solution. Right. So, so things redshift for the same reason that a plane, when a plane goes overhead, right? It makes this noise, right? It's just a Doppler shift. <laughs> or the ambulance, right? The ambulance goes by, it's got a different pitch when it's coming, and then when it passes, it shifts its frequency down. Same thing, stars go away, they shift their frequency that they're emitting. Okay, so we know how to find the temperature. Here's a bunch of equations. Okay, this, oh, this is good. I just, I, I changed this this morning because I, I didn't like the exposition that was in your notes. So this is not in your notes. Sorry, <laughs> a lot of equations on it. So the way it's done in your notes is the way that your book does it. 
Um, I think my way is more rigorous. They come up with the same answer, so it must have been at the end of the day be the same thing. But this this will be on the web after <coughs> class. Okay, so you can download this this PDF file from the web. Uh, the energy density we already calculated goes like T cubed. Okay, so all this stuff in front, I squared over 15 h bar cubed d cubed. That's just a number. So just say it's a number. Okay. I find these equations amusing too. You said T cubed, and you're pointing to the floor. I said T cubed. I'm sorry. I would fail my exam. All right, so I'm going to step on Boltzmann law is T fourth. So temperature, okay, we'd like to understand what's the entropy inside the box. So it's a box of photons. Right? It's got a particular temperature, it's got a particular internal energy, there's also an entropy associated with it. So what's the entropy? We can calculate that, kind of do a backdoor method here. The temperature is du by d sigma at constant volume. Because remember, this is something you should put in your brain, du is tau d sigma minus pdv. So if I'm working at constant volume, this term goes away, and the temperature becomes du by d sigma. There's the at constant volume. So I can solve this equation here for temperature, so let's do that, okay? I'll multiply, you know, by, well, anyway, divide both sides by this term, and you get temperature is all this stuff times U, the internal energy, all that to the fourth, okay? Just, there's a bunch of constants in here, but the important thing is the relation of tau to U, so track that, okay? Track the, track the tau and the U. So temperature goes like U to the fourth, to the, yeah, the one fourth because energy went like tau to the fourth. And now, okay, what can I do with this? Uh, the, since since uh, tau is the u by d sigma, <coughs> okay, I can take the d sigma, let's see, probably quicker, let me start from here. Let me start from du is tau d sigma at constant volume, cross that off. Divide both sides by the temperature, okay, and then I would get a d sigma equals du over tau. I believe I can do that? Okay. So here's d sigma equals du over tau. I divided out temperature, which is all this mess here. But the important part was u to the one-fourth. So there's the over u to the one-fourth. Now I'm integrating both sides. Because on the left-hand side, I have only sigma as variables. On the right-hand side, I have only u as variables. So I can do that. I can integrate both sides. Okay. So integrate the sigma will give me the total entropy. I have all these constants on the front. The important part is integrate u to the minus one-fourth du. You know how to take that integral. It's u to the one minus one-fourth divided by one minus one-fourth. They give you an overall u to the three-fourths divided by three-fourths. And when I pull all the constants together, okay, I'll get this four-thirds here. I'll come out with an overall four over 45. Three times 15 will be 45. But the important part was watch the u, u to the three-fourths. Well, u goes like t to the fourth. So there's a t to the fourth, the three fourths. Okay? So it's an overall t to the third. Okay. So what I did was I, I took your, your thermodynamic identity. I got an equation where on the left-hand side I had only sigma variables. On the right-hand side only u variables. I substituted out the temperature. And then integrated both sides. And I find that the entropy, total entropy, 
is 4 pi squared V over 45 H bar cubed C cubed all times T cubed. So it's the temperature cubed that was the important part. Okay? Entropy goes like temperature cubed. Uh, energy goes like temperature to the fourth. Entropy goes like temperature cubed. And that's good because uh, temperature itself is supposed to be du by d sigma. Any questions about how that went? Okay, your notes have a different, shorter exposition, but I, I didn't like it because it used temperature as a variable. Okay, so this way, this way I have no confusion, right? I get to use u as a variable and sigma as a variable, and that's it. Okay. Same thing at the end of the day, but sigma goes like temperature cubed. So there's entropy in the photon box. So these guys, maybe you've seen this picture before. This is uh, Arno Kanzias and Robert Wilson. And uh, this is the beginnings of how the data for the Big Bang was discovered. Okay, people had predicted the Big Bang a long time ago, um, 40, 50, something like that. Basically from general relativity, you take general relativity plus the fact that stars are moving away from us and you run it all back in time, you find that, ah, the universe must have had a beginning. But what should, there, you know, evidence of that came in later, okay? The big evidence of it really came in in the 90s. These guys back in 65 found the first glimmer of, of evidence of that the Big Bang really did happen, you know, not that just that it was in your equations, but that it actually happened. So this is cool. You know who Bell Labs is, okay? This is back before the breakup of AT&T. <laughs> they had a very nice research facility called Bell Labs, which after the breakup of AT&T was spun off as Lucent Technologies and is no longer as well funded. <laughs> but back in their heyday, Bell Labs did a lot of basic research. Um, you know, to apply it to their to their um, their company, okay, and their technological needs. But they also supported a lot of basic researchers, and they had this idea that we'd like to do some satellite communications back in 1965. We could do some satellite communications if we send up some weather balloons and use them as kind of relays for big. <laughs> this is a big antenna. <laughs> that would be a huge antenna that would be kind of reading in the signal. Okay, so it's going to be a primitive. primitive uh, a communication system. It didn't work, you know, it ended up, you know, having too many problems. But this is a big antenna. It can can uh, catch, it's good at catching uh, long wavelength uh, light, okay? So things that are very, very low frequencies, long wavelength. So these guys decided, hey, we could use that to do some astronomy. Will you let us use your old piece of equipment you're not using? We're going to point it to the sky and see what we can find out uh, about the sky at very low frequencies. So it had a funny background noise to it. Hmm. Okay. Weird noise coming in the antenna. And it's because, and that, that was the first, you know, good evidence that came in that the Big Bang actually happened. So, um, so the universe acts like a black body radiating at 2.9 Kelvin. Okay. Gosh, how did that happen? Uh, the early universe had uh, lots of particles, but we used to have everything ionized, okay, before the hydrogen formed. It was all electrons and protons and big plasma, okay? And it was just too hot for the, the hydrogen to exist yet. To take hydrogen gas and it heated up enough, eventually they all ionized everything. So that's what this was. And at about 3,000 Kelvin, the electrons and protons were all ionized. And since, since they're ionized and you have free charges running around, that interacts very well with light, okay? So this thing was radiating in the black body. It was in thermal equilibrium. Came with the radiation that it's giving off. 
So there's a bunch of electrons, protons, and light all in thermal equilibrium because they have a good exchange mechanism because the electrons and protons are free. Now, when you know, the universe expanded and the universe cooled off a little bit, hydrogen formed. As soon as the hydrogen formed, it couldn't interact with the light as well anymore. Okay. So basically, that's when this gas of photons and now the gas of hydrogen go out of thermal equilibrium to each other, which means, though, that the light that's, that's left around is left, is left around from this plasma. So when the matter stops interacting so easily with the light, they're separate thermal systems now. Now we cool the universe by isentropic expansion. You remember what this isentropic word means. It's got the word entropy in it. Okay, and iso means constant. This is a constant entropy expansion. You just take all the photon modes. Okay, treat the universe is a big box. You take all the photon modes and start them out. Okay, so you won't change the occupancies, but you will change the frequencies. So, whereas it started off at 3,000 Kelvin temperature, when you spread it out enough, okay, it goes down to now 2.9 Kelvin. So expansion, the universe lowered the frequencies, didn't change their occupation numbers, and this is called the cosmic background radiation. It's black body radiation of the plasma that happened before we had atoms form in the universe. Is there any questions about that? Okay, so Planck's black body radiation kind of helps us figure out that, that the Big Bang happened. This is fun, okay? <laughs> Can you kind of make out this picture? This is um, salmon. Uh, it's like shrimp. There's ice back there, okay? And this is somebody who's trying to sell that stuff. He's got a, a, a pyrometer, which is an infrared thermometer. Have you seen these things? I want one. I always put it on my Christmas list every year. No one ever buys it for me. But I just want a little thing that I can point at stuff and say, ooh, that's that temperature, and that's that temperature, <laughs> and that's that temperature. So that's what this is. It's looking at the photon spectrum coming off of the salmon. Okay? So the salmon is at a particular temperature. The salmon is radiated. But we all know it's okay. Everything does it. Everything that has a temperature radiates photons with its plain black body radiation. So this, this pyrometer is measuring the spectrum of photons being emitted by the salmon due to its temperature. And it uh, measures that, it looks for the peak frequency, and says, I know the temperature of that salmon. So you can measure the temperature at a distance. <coughs> Don't you want one too? I mean, I don't want one. Yeah. Okay, anyway, let's go with Yeah? How much is it? I don't remember. Yeah, I'm not serious enough to actually buy it. You say what? For a couple hundred bucks. Okay. See, that would be why I saw my Christmas in life. For real stuff. So, what we'd like to, okay, I'd like to also figure out um, what's the flux. This is this is your problem on your homework. You have the heat shield problem where you need to talk about the radiant uh, energy density flux coming away from from infinite sheets that are at a particular temperature. So here's how we calculate that. Use this, okay, the energy density in the box. So let me say that I have a, a gas of photons in here, right there at thermal equilibrium of the box. I'm going to cut a little hole. And what I want to know is, if I keep the box at the same temperature, how fast will energy come out? 
Okay? Basically, it was the power of that beam that I just made. Okay? Beam of photons. So, we need to figure out what carries the energy out of the box, and we need to figure out how fast it moves. So, oh, this is kind of hard to read, isn't it? Sorry about that. Uh, is it easy to read in your notes? Slightly. Okay. So, cut a hole in the box. There's a particular energy density in there. I think I might come up make some light spin myself. Okay, so we'll cut a hole in the box. There's a particular energy density in there, U per V, right? Total energy per volume. Light will come shooting out, okay, because some of the photons are headed the right direction, they'll escape. So there's a particular cross sectional area in, you know, coming out of this, this box. And for a particular, you know, let me take a particular volume element and analyze that first, okay? So the, the energy coming out. I'd like to have energy per time per area, okay, because that's, that's the right thing here. I can't <coughs> just open the box and say a certain amount of energy escape. That's not quite correct. The energy that comes out will depend on the size of the hole, so it will depend on the cross-sectional area. Larger area, more energy. Smaller area, less energy coming out. It also depends how long I sit and wait, okay? So it's really a power coming out per, per area. So it's really a power per area. Question, Kyle. That's a general set of questions. Is this hole in the pyrometer, or is it in the thing we're measuring? It's in the thing we're measuring. Okay, so if we put a salmon in a box, we put a hole in the box? Yeah, yeah, salmon in a box. Yeah, no, good question. <laughs> so, the power per area, okay, and again, I'm going to think of, think of this geometry. See, if I take the energy density that's coming out of this, in this volume element here, the part that came out in a length uh, L, where L is the speed of light times the time of looking over. Okay, so I'll have some volume moment there that comes out. Um, a is the cross-sectional area. So the energy, total energy that's coming out is energy per time, per area. I can rewrite the area uh, as volume divided by length. Okay, so it's the total volume of this thing divided by length. Or length per time, coming out of there is the speed of light. Okay, because length is distance equals rate times time, right? So this is length per time is the velocity of whatever's coming out. What's coming out is light. Light moves at the speed of light. So this is uh, energy uh, times speed of light divided by volume. So really it's energy density times speed of light. That'll give us the power per area coming out of the, the hole that we and this is just dimensional analysis, right? I put the dimension dimensional analysis down there to let you know that I didn't calculate the geometric factors. If you really want to be careful, you have to worry about, well, you know, I have to worry about some angles and the shape of the box and the shape of the hole and those sort of things. So up to geometric factors that have to do with the size of the box, the shape of the box, the shape of the hole. Uh, these are the right units. Energy times speed of light divided by volume will give us a power per area. And the power per area is what we call the energy flux density. Okay, so energy flux density is what your book uses. It's really a power per area. Use either one you want. Okay, and so basically we have C times the uh, energy divided by volume. Okay, the one fourth is that geometric factor that we're not going to calculate. Okay, and all of that together then 
take your take your u that we've been calculating, okay, and multiply by one factor of the speed of light, divide by the volume, multiply by a fourth, and you get this answer. So it still depends on t to the fourth. So all these constants over here are pi squared divided by 60 h bar cubed c squared. We lump all that together and call that the Stefan-Boltzmann constant. Okay. That's how to make your theory, you know, widely known and appreciated. Take all the constants and lump them into something else, name it after yourself. Okay. <laughs> Put the important dependent, temperature dependent, to the fourth. Okay. So the energy flux density from a black body or the power per area, same thing, radiating from a black body goes like t to the fourth times the stuff on Boltzmann constant that takes care of all these things in here, pi squared over 60 h bar cubed c squared. Any questions about that? I've put the numerical value of the constant. You can calculate it. It's just, it's just fundamental constant. The speed of light, it's h bar, kb. Okay. <coughs> Any questions? Where'd my kb come from? Kind of snuck that in. Okay, so with tau up here, tau the fourth, and our tau is kb times temperature in Kelvin. So here's temperature in Kelvin, so I must have had a kb to the fourth. Any questions? Okay, so this sets up uh, your, your homework problem. And if you haven't gotten to the heat shield problem yet, I found the problem easier to solve if I didn't use the equation they gave me, but if I started from this the energy flux density coming off of the sheet was proportional to this in both directions. Easier for me that way. Solve the problem, however, makes sense to you. Now we get the phonons. Ah, so this is picture of atoms regularly placed <coughs> in a crystal. Crystals that have a regular atomic arrangement like that uh, can support phonons. Phonons are just what happens when the thing vibrates. So here's my squishy crystal. Everyone was disappointed in the hallway because it's not really a squishy crystal. It's a model of a squishy crystal. You forgot to mention I forgot to mention the model. Yeah. Okay, so here's the model of a squishy crystal. It's just a bunch of balls of springs. And this, this model is microscopically what happens inside a solid. So you know intuitively that when you push on a solid, it pushes back. This is part of what's going on. There's a, there are atomic forces basically that say, no, I don't want to be that distance, I want to be this distance apart. So when you push, the solid pushes back. There, right there, okay? Mm -hmm. And what's, what's fun about this is this, this new way to demonstrate what the phonon modes look like. So uh, this is only a few, oh, sorry, everybody's looking around. Okay, so there's only a few atoms in here, but I can take, for example, a kind of excited like that. I'll get a slow phonon mode. See how this guy can have a slow velocity? can excite other ones that have kind of a higher frequency to them. So different phonons at different wavelengths will have different energies associated with them. Okay, and then I can have other modes like that and so on. Okay, but basically we just have a, have a lot of vibrational modes. So what we say in a solid is that they're very vibrational modes. Each distinct vibrational mode we call a phonon. The reason we put O-N, right? O-N is what you use when things come in quantized units, right? Bosons, fermions. Anyway, <laughs> it's not my joke, bad joke. Um, I got that from David Goodstein. <laughs> uh, so these are sound particles, is what we mean by it. Kind of the groans are traveling across the room. <laughs> 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 it's like the phonon modes. Yeah, it's the phonon mode. <laughs> so phonons are sound particles. So when I take the mode and say that's a particular particle that I'm going to think about, then that, I call it a phonon. Okay. So I'll pass this around to make a lot of noise. The rest of lecture. 
and I'll have to talk louder. So what we worry about in sound then is, is these vibrational modes, and they're distinct vibrational modes, and then, actually, uh, I'm not going to tell you how to quantize them, but let me tell you that you can quantize them and count them as phonons. And, and then, basically, I can take one particular mode, and if I add more phonons to it, then the amplitude <coughs> goes up. That's, that's what the number of phonons will be. In the same way that in the photon box, we added more photons to a mode, and then the total electric field for that mode went up. Same thing here. The amplitude of vibration now will go up as I add phonons to the same mode. Okay? So all these guys are moving and they'll have a certain, you know, the modes will be excited thermally, basically. The crystal has a particular temperature, there's vibrational modes running around, and all of those different vibrational modes have particular energies associated with them. They'll get thermally populated according to statistical, according to statistical mechanics, and we're going to calculate the heat capacity. Okay? So it turns out we've already done most of the work because this is going to be very much like the photon problem, okay? So again, photons are sound particles, quantized vibrational modes in a solid. They're really just little harmonic oscillator modes, okay? You can play with it, and you'll see it just kind of wiggles back and forth. Things that wiggle back and forth are harmonic oscillators, right? Or at least we can approximate them as such, as kind of a first approximation of things. So, um, right, there's two things we know how to do as physicists. Number one, take Taylor expansion. Number two, solve the harmonic oscillator. So your photons were a harmonic oscillator. The phonons are also separate harmonic oscillator modes. So we can approximate the phonon modes. Okay, so this, what does this line mean here? If I have a crystal, now I'm going to worry about phonon modes in it. What I'd like to think of here is a vibrational mode where, for example, on the inside there's a lot of displacement, but there's not a lot of displacement on the outside. I can have different boundary conditions, too, where I let them oscillate on the outside as well. But basically, there will be standing waves. That's what I'm looking at, the waves in the crystal that are the vibrational mode. Sorry, I shouldn't have said standing, because they don't all stand. Oh, just put it back together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I put it together, so all the parts, just put the springs back on. Um, so. Basically, what I'm representing here is displacement of atoms in the solid as they wiggle in these vibrational modes. So we'll count them in the same way that we counted um, uh, the photons. Okay? So there's a certain thermal average occupancy of each phonon mode. See what I'm doing? I'm just taking our previous calculation on photons and I'm replacing it with the word phonon. Okay, good, because they're both harmonic oscillators and we can just carry the calculation on through. That's what nice about physics, right? You put some math behind it, and then if the math matches another problem, you solve that problem too. So here's the average thermal occupation of a phonon mode. We already did that problem because we did photons. So it's 1 over e to the h bar omega over tau minus 1. What we'll see is that the heat capacity at low temperature goes like T cubed, okay? And that the heat capacity at high temperature is going to saturate in this system. The heat capacity at high temperature will go towards the equipartition theorem, and the equipartition theorem says that you equally excite all modes. So at high temperature, we'll find the full heat capacity is when I have 3n kb. Can you think of where the 3n might come from? N is the number of atoms in the crystal, by the way. Yeah. It's going to be our degrees of freedom, okay? So we're going to calculate the total energy, count the phonons, 
and use the equipartition theorem. So when we counted photons, okay, this is the photons line here. Down below is how we're going to count phonons. It's slightly different, but very similar. When we counted photons, we had the two in front of the sum over nx and y and nz for two polarizations. For a given set of nx and y and nz, there were two polarizations of the electric field that could come along. When we count phonons, given these nx and y and nz that count the number of nodes, we actually have three polarizations. Photons had two. Phonons will have three polarizations. It's because there are two transverse modes and one longitudinal mode for every set of ends. Okay, so uh, what do these look like? Uh, transverse mode is where the atoms, the phonon is traveling that way, the atoms are wiggling transverse. Okay. So the atoms can wiggle transverse in this direction or transverse in that direction for phonon vibration traveling that way. Those are the transverse modes. They can also just bump into each other directly. And that's the longitudinal mode. Okay. Whereas the photons couldn't do that. So here we have three polarizations, factor of three, sum over these ends. Now, whereas the photons could go all the way up to infinity, our phonons can't. The phonons don't quite have all of those excitations available. So I'm going to cut this off. And, um, you know, why, why physically do you think that I should cut this guy off? I'm going to say that there's a maximum N that I could have. Mm. So you could break the original part. Ah, okay. And how would that happen? Um, by maybe through vibrating the resonance 